This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries, friend. My name is Nate. I am a grateful recovering alcoholic and sober coach. My addiction has shaped the person I am today and given me the ability and voice to help others, and I simply wouldn't be here without it. Recovery is possible. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we share powerful stories of recovery told by those who live them. Head on over to the sobrietydiaries.com where you can apply to be a guest on the show and join our insiders list for exclusive content, early release episodes, and much more. Also, please share this podcast with just one person in your life who may still be struggling. You just never know what they may need to hear today. Before we jump into things today, I wanted to take a moment to thank Exact Nature for partnering with me on today's episode. Exact Nature's all-natural CBD-based products are specially formulated to help you lighten the load in recovery, be it with addictive cravings, depression and anxiety, or improving sleep. Founded and run by a father-son team, both in recovery, this issue is personal for them. Learn more at exactnature.com. And as a listener of the Sobriety Diaries, use the code TSD20 to receive a 20% discount off your order. Again, exactnature.com. Happy Sober Day, friends. Thank you so much for downloading today's episode and spending time with me here on the Sobriety Diaries. I am so appreciative of your time and continued support, so please keep coming back. You can check out all things podcast-related. We have an insider's list and much more at thesobrietydiaries.com. We are revamping our website soon, so stay tuned for a launch of the new website. Very exciting. I, of course, will keep you updated with all of the information. But on to today, we are talking to David Golden. David now works in the recovery industry, but it wasn't an easy road to get there, um, as most are not. David is a gay man who used meth and other drugs to fuel this need for really acceptance through sex. And he is very open about the fact that he used drugs and alcohol to fuel these sex, almost sex parties and, you know, irresponsibility with sexual partners and this sort of chem sex culture in the gay community and really just opens up to shine some light on this hookup culture that we see now with with dating apps. So very appreciative of David's honesty and being so open with us. I think it's an important story to tell. So let's open the diary on David Golden. David Golden, thank you so much for joining us on the Sobriety Diaries. How are you today? I am doing fantastic. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Is it a hot day in Texas? 
It is. It hasn't been as hot as like last year. It's not hot as typical Texas weather, but it's still 92, 93. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your willingness to share your story and sort of making things happen quickly. So uh, I appreciate your time today. What sort of prompted you to, to come on these sobriety diaries and share your story? Well, part of my recovery, right, is helping as many people as I can. And when I was in early recovery, I heard a couple of people share their stories and it really clicked for me. Ah, maybe one or two things they said, you know, clicked for me and made me realize that I could do it as well. I told a story not long ago. One of one of the first speaker meetings that I went to and, and heard something that I really related to came from a 75-year-old woman. And kind of how you and I were talking before we started recording, you never know who it's going to come from or what that person will look like, but there are shared experiences I think that we can all relate to. So I'm Absolutely. certain that I'm certain that we can help a few people today. So thank you again for being of here. Course. Why don't we start with walking through your story together? Okay, sounds great. Well, I am 51 years old. Uh, I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, parents were fantastic. I had great parents. Still have great parents. Uh, they divorced when I was five. Uh, my dad remarried to the love of his life. And I felt nothing but love from them my entire life, right? And so uh, I was born, literally, I won the lottery when it came to parents and when it came to families. You know, I have an older brother, an older sister. Uh, My older brother, by the way, when he was around 15 years old, he went out into the woods to burn trash and found God, you know? And he has had a spiritual experience at 15, and he's lived that way his entire life. He's older than me. That is not my experience. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, growing up in Shreveport, I, from an early age, I just felt something was there, right? I'm convinced that whatever uh, alcoholism or addiction is, I was born. And so uh, if you look at pictures of me, it's interesting when I was five to seven to eight, I'm never smiling. Right. And so as I got older, I started realizing that something else was different, and that was that I was gay. And in the 19, early 1980s, late 1970s in Shreveport, Louisiana, that was not an okay thing, right? Right. And just from society uh, to go into church or whatever, you, you, I learned from an early age that was not something I wanted to broadcast. So there was a lot of shame and guilt because of that. Uh, I, I lived with my mother. When uh, after my parents divorced, and she also moved around a lot at an early age. So I think I was always going to new schools, uh, trying to get accepted by the people there, right? And so I started building these uh, stage characters almost in my head from an early age. I want to fit in with uh, the jocks at one point. I want to fit in with the smart people. Any Anything I needed to do, almost like a coping mechanism. Yeah. So uh, in uh, the mid to late 1980s, I started high school. And at the time, if you look in history, what was going on is uh, uh, the AIDS epidemic had just started on each one of the coasts. By the late 80s, I graduated high school in 1988. By the late 80s, early 90s, uh, it was everywhere. So people reacted out of fear and not knowing what it was. And so there was a lot of homophobia around. Yeah, And it, it sent me very, very deep into the closet. 
you know, and uh, it, it's interesting. Some of the people to this day that are giants to me were people that went through that journey and ended up dying because of the disease. But they formed a group called ACT UP, AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. Yeah. And they would march and they would, because they knew they were dying. And, and I say that because it's interesting to the disease of addiction and alcohol to me, and that they had a disease they knew they would die of, and they were doing anything they could to find a cure. Mm. And uh, a lot of them didn't make it, you know? And so what you, you had things, and I know you, you may have heard of the Westboro Baptist Church or different places that are, you know, would literally picket the streets with God hates fags and all this stuff. Yeah. And a lot of that came out during the AIDS epidemic. And like I said, it made the shame and guilt and it made me inside want to be anyone else than who I was. Right. Had you at this point voiced this to anyone? Oh, absolutely not. So not a soul. Not a soul. Maybe with the exception of a couple of friends that were gay, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, I, in 1988, I graduated high school and went away to college, only like an hour away, but still went away to college. And there was a town near there that had gay bars. Mm. So I found my place finally, right? It was a place that I could go and I could get accepted. I could go on the weekends, all, the, all to the point that school or college became secondary. I was living for the weekends to go to a place where I could be accepted by other people. Now, what comes hand in hand with that is it's a bar. And so it's alcohol, uh, it's drugs, it's all of that. It started off with alcohol, you know, so I, I failed out of college uh, due to alcohol, my alcohol use. I went back, I tried to go back a couple of times, still couldn't make it because, uh, you know, the alcohol abuse. When I was 19, my dad, uh, my family helped pay for a, an addiction therapist kind of a family therapist, addiction therapist, I would go to him every morning and take antabuse in front of him. Wow. That's how my day started. That was kind of uh, what my treatment looked like back in, you know, 1989. Got it. Uh, but I found other ways. I, I wouldn't drink alcohol because it would make me very sick, but I found other ways to use, you know, uh, cocaine, uh, pills, all the other stuff started rising up. And it happened for years and years, for decades. You know, I started with alcohol and cocaine all the way to pills, any kind of pills I could get my hands on. Uh, In my 30s, I went to a methadone clinic to try to quit uh, and then got on benzos and other drugs and it just spirals. Then uh, when I was in my mid 40s, kind of a late bloomer, I discovered meth. Right. And so I uh, had just gone through a breakup with someone that I've been with for like over 20 years. And so now I'm at the house all by myself and everything is quiet. And although I thought it was what I wanted, at least as far as the breakup goes, the isolation and the quietness just drove me crazy. So uh, within a few weeks, I had a bunch of strangers at my house using drugs and using meth like we do, you know? And um, I remembered I, the first time a friend of mine offered it to me, I said, oh, no, I do other stuff. I would never smoke meth, ever. By that afternoon, I was smoking meth. Yeah. And then I had another uh, guy that was in my house. I found out he was shooting up. And I went and cornered him, and I said, you cannot do that in my house. I will not elect. Within three days, I was shooting up meth, right? So long story short, I lost everything. Lost my house. 
uh, lost my vehicles, lost my family, lost my long-term friends, ended up homeless on the streets of Shreveport, Louisiana. And uh, I would go and couch surf or try to stay at guys' house that I would pick up, guys that I could pick up on Grinder, what have you. I'm just going to be honest. Yeah. And we would use meth and have sex. And all of that was so tied in together. Uh, and so there was never a thought for me that uh, even though I'm homeless and I have nothing, it was never the thought at the time that my life is unmanageable. I thought I was killing it, right? Because of all the experiences I was having. Uh, and my life was unraveling right before me. And so I, uh, I had uh, my brother at the time had always reached out and said, hey, if you ever want help, let me know. And uh, so I went, to, I was at a friend's house and we were having the meth stuff you do, you know, having a bunch of guys over and stuff and using meth. And for whatever reason, he was in a bad mood. And he basically said, I said, what's wrong with you? You know, he said, well, is this all there is? Is this all there is? For whatever reason, that hit me to my core. Mm. You know, I had a meltdown. I went in this guest room and I literally had a meltdown because that's all my life had been about for two or three years. You know, it was just using, getting high, sex, all that stuff. And it made me kind of, I think for the first time, maybe it made me confront that emptiness that all of that brought. And so I called my brother. I said, I need help. He came over. We sat in the driveway and talked. This is on a Thursday night. He said, all right, well, I can help you get into treatment. Let's go. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Now I won't help, but not now. You know, <laughs> can we go Monday? Yeah. I've got stuff to do this week. Let's go of Monday. Course, you know, of course. You know, that, that, and he said, all right, well, I'll be ready Monday. And so the next day I got arrested, uh, leaving a place, got arrested for felony possession. Kind of a, a looking back, kind of Damn. God doing for me what I could not do for myself. Right? Yes, sir. Uh and it turns out losing my house and getting arrested were two of the worst things that have ever happened to me. In hindsight, they're two of the best things that ever happened to me. There it is. Losing the house and, and things were financially because of, of the money you were putting toward drugs or? Yes, a little of that. And uh, I just had given up on everything else. Yeah. I'd given up on paying bills. I'd given up on being responsible. It, Got it. Everything in my life was centered around where could I get more drugs and continue this lifestyle. Everything else was secondary. And I'm Got sure it. a lot of people resonate with that to the, to the point of showering. Of course, of course. Showering, taking care of yourself is secondary. All you want is that uh, dopamine rush and, and the next hit. So when I got arrested, uh, I called my brother again. And he let me in, left me in there for a while, but said he would get me out if I went to treatment. And I said, okay, yeah, absolutely. And I came out to Austin, Texas, uh, went to a treatment center. I was there for 90 days. I was in sober living for about a year after that. And I found an interesting thing. I started going to meetings, 12-step meetings, and I started going to surrounding myself with other guys heading the same direction I was, right? Yeah. And I found a stronger connection than I had years before at the gay bars. But I finally found a community that uh, all wanted to help me, right? And we were all going the same direction, like I said. Uh, and I learned three, it kind of boils down to three things for me that I learned. Number one is get honest. 
Number two is get uncomfortable. Number mm. three is give up control. And by getting honest, I mean 100% honest about everything. And that means especially with myself, right? Uh, I am an open book these days, and either people are going to like it or they're not. But I'm also someone who, it's weird, you know, back in my addiction, I remember going to a friend's house and I knocked on his door and I could see that it's raining outside. It's, it's very cold. It's like November. It's raining outside. I've got my bags with me. I have nowhere else to go. I knock on his door and I could see through the curtains, their figures. And he was going, shh, don't. it's David. Don't, you know, Damn. and he just let me there, acted like he wasn't there. But nowadays uh, I find that getting vulnerable and honest with other guys, I have all the friends that will do anything I wanted in the world. for me. You know, yeah. uh, it's a weird thing. We have those stage characters that I was talking about earlier that we're trying to impress people. We want to seem tough or want to see, we lie about this and that trying to look good and get connection. What I have found is getting vulnerable and being a hundred percent authentic. I have more people that like me than ever before. Absolutely. Because they respect that. Yeah. And, and the same thing with getting uncomfortable. I have to do uncomfortable work. You know, the facility I went to was a 12 step program. And so part of that is doing some stuff that I don't want to do. You know, there's a friend of mine that calls it contrary action, which for, <laughs> an, for, yeah, for an addict alcoholic, a lot of times, whatever I want to do, I need to do the contrary. And then usually giving, my first thought is like out in left field, the wrong thing. Yes. So I love that contrary action. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, my, uh, you know, sponsor says, uh, you're not responsible. We're not responsible for our first thought, right? Mm -hmm. But we are responsible for our first action. And then the third thing is giving up control. Growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana, I uh, learned from an early age that in my mind, God did not like me, right? That I was wrong. I was, it was a sin, what I was doing or how I felt, just the fact that what I felt inside was a sin. I never wanted anything to do with God. Just that was the furthest thing from me. Now I would go to church with my family and get involved and act like I did, but I didn't want any kind of personal relationship, right? And so I learned when I went to treatment and through the 12, through the 12 steps is to give up control, surrender the results. And I mean, give up control to the universe, to God, whatever your higher power is, right? And uh, I had my first sponsor told me, he said, I want you to imagine that God, the universe, whatever your higher power is, loves you and is proud of you exactly who you are and have always been. And you were meant to be that way for a reason. And that blew my mind. Yeah. Right. Because all the shame and guilt that I had learned about being gay did not, the two things didn't go together. Right. But once I, started believing that though, and surrendering results and giving up control to God and praying and meditating, my life changed immensely. And uh, that's a hard thing, I think, for a lot of gay people to, to do. I was just going to say, like, I grew up in a small town too in the Midwest, and you do have this shame and this guilt, and it almost turns itself into this, like, internalized homophobia, where... Yes you hate yourself and you hate the fact that you are gay, but it's, it's such a big part of your life. It's who you are and not even internalized because then I would, 
I would be scared of other gay people or being around other gay people and being found out by them or being exposed or, you know, it it just manifested itself in in so many different ways to your point until I could just be myself and just be authentic and just put it all out there. But that was, that was a long time coming, even after I got sober. Absolutely. And I think it's still that when I hear of homophobia, that's what I really think of. That's the most dangerous type, in my opinion, is internal homophobia. Yeah. It's responsible for a lot of people's suicides. Uh, I've known a handful of people that uh, over a handful of people in my lifetime that have committed suicide because of, you know, and so one, that's one of the things I'm grateful for that I am a drug addict is because I, when I started working a program, I not only was able to stop the drugs and the alcohol, but I was able to start dealing with a lot of that stuff. I was able to really start some work you know, with therapists, with my sponsor, uh, or the other guys you know, that, are, that are close to me these days. I have guys in my life now that I can talk to about anything, you know, and a couple of them, the couple that are closest to me are straight. They don't have any experience like I do, right? Yeah, right. If I would have met them years ago, I'd have been like, no, hell no, that's not, that's not my guy. You know? <laughs> right, right. Same. But they, they call me and they, they talk to me about real honest stuff. And when they get vulnerable like that, I realize, oh, I can get vulnerable with them. Yeah, and the world doesn't end. So I love that. Yeah. I think it's about the lived experience. I think that we can all relate to and not necessarily, you know, what, what we look like or what we um, have been brought up to believe. I get you, you get me. We, we don't even necessarily have to say anything to one another. Absolutely. And some, it, it's weird. Uh, some of the people in my circle or my tribe, as I call it, yeah, like you said, are people I would have never thought, you know, they're, uh, uh, I share stuff with guys that are former bikers, you know, that are all tatted up. Yeah. Or with uh, businessmen and own businesses that uh, we all have that one thing in common, right? That we've had alcoholism or addiction and we've had to uh, confront it and get past it. And the way that we do that, at least for me, the way that I do that is going to some meetings and talking to these guys, you know, and opening up. And it's amazing what that does. I mean, if I, in early recovery, when I would have a using thought, right, or a using dream. My default, and you and I were kind of talking about it earlier, my default is to kind of isolate and just obsess over it. And then it becomes this thing. And I learned just to open up about it. Yeah. Call somebody and tell them, you know, hey, man, you won't believe the thought I had earlier. You know, and it just takes the power away. It just takes the power away. And I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about a minute ago, which is the connection and stuff I found in the gay bars, right? When I was younger. It's that same same kind of connection with people, but on a deeper level, on a deeper spiritual level, because we're identifying with something that we're going through, right? That we share uh, share in common, uh, similar to what I found early on in the gay bars. Yeah, right. We had a share experience, but this this time it's in a, in a very positive way, and we help each other. I think it's important too. I want to touch on gay dating app scene and how it has evolved, maybe not in a positive way. And this, this whole sort of chem sex and, and party and play culture or atmosphere, it sounds like progressed rather quickly, um, with you. 
I wonder if you would speak on that a little more and maybe offer some caution or guidance to some of our queer listeners. Yeah, for me, uh, like I said, day in and day out for a couple of years, my day was spent uh, getting high, going on Grindr or any dating app and hooking up with as many people as I could, you know, trying to fill some kind of void, I guess, looking back on it. But I think it's to the point of it's an epidemic in our country, in my opinion, in the gay community, because so many people's sex life is, are tied up to this, the chem sex, like you mentioned, yeah. or, a, you know, a party and play. And so when someone, I don't know, in my thought, when somebody wants to, is a junkie and heroin is affecting their life, right? Or a lot of any of the drugs, or alcohol, you hit rock bottom and you want to get help a lot of times. I think it's, this is just my personal opinion, but I think it's harder for some gay men using meth because it's so tied up to their sexual identity, Yes, their sexual activity. So they may get to the point, and I know I did, I got to the point a couple of times where, like I said, I lost my house and everything. Part of me may have wanted to give up the meth, but it was tied up into so much of who I was at that moment. It was not even a passing thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's a lot harder to get help. Uh, for me, I had to confront that when I got into treatment, I had to confront that. Let's, we used to have process groups in the center where I was. And when they would ask, does anybody have anything they process, want to process? I would always say, yeah, I want to talk about sex. Yeah. How do I not associate sex with drugs or love in that case, then with sex and with drugs? Absolutely. And I think uh, that's a good point that you just hit on. Uh, For me, I was associating it with love, but it wasn't, right? It wasn't true love. Um, I'm a firm believer that now, looking back, and I'm a a very firm believer that sex is uh, something more special than I have treated it before, right? Yeah. Uh, Instead of just a pleasure center, that is mixed in with drugs. These days I have learned to, I've been single for one thing for, you know, a few years now. And it is one of the greatest things I have done. They have told, they told me in early recovery, you can't, you need to be kind of not dating anybody, not seeking that for the first year of recovery. Yeah. And I thought, you are out of your mind. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I've got to, I'm in treatment for three months. I can't even do it for three months. How, <laughs> you know, that's where my mind was at the time. But now uh, it's the smartest thing I ever did because I was able to, deal, like I said, work with some of the issues and deal on, work with myself and deal with certain things that I've never really talked about or dealt with before to the point that now in my life, my confidence has come back. My self-esteem has come back. Anybody that I hang out with, like I was saying earlier, needs to be heading the same direction I am. And that goes also to my sex life and to my love life. The things that I used to accept or the people I used to accept in my life sexually or deal in a loving way are not, I would never accept that today. That makes sense. Yeah, for my sure. My standards are much higher and sex is probably the most powerful. It is the most powerful, natural thing we can do. It's the most powerful, natural way to show affection. And so I was just going around wasting at that everywhere. Because of meth, not because of meth, they're long mixed in with that. Right. And I, I, 
I do think oh, it's so hard these days, and I have some sponsees that are recovering meth addicts, right? They're gay. It is so hard for people to get sober to deal with that because they tie that in with their sex life. So if you are listening and struggling with that and want help, both of our contact info will be in the show notes. Um, reach out anytime. We're happy to to help with any questions or to help you start a path of recovery. You know, one of the things for me when I was in my addiction, I literally, uh, of course, I wasn't listening to sober podcasts, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my addiction, but I didn't, I had this idea of what sobriety was and I wanted nothing to do with that. So if you are listening to this and if you're struggling, I can tell you it is nothing like you think it is. It is so much better. I have laughed more. I've had more fun and more adventures in sobriety than I ever did in my addiction. I was stagnant in my addiction for a long time because I had this idea in my head that admitting I was an alcoholic and potentially living this sober life was more tragic and was going to be so boring. And so that probably drugged my addiction on for an additional two or three years. Life started really when I got sober. It really started for me and learned new things about myself, just started this path of not only not drinking, but living a better life and helping other people and evolving every day. Just about evolution, right? Absolutely. Uh, and it, you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying too, about getting uncomfortable. Yes. When I was in my addiction, that was all I knew, right? That's comfort for me. That was comfortable. So I was terrified of doing anything different because we get comfortable with that. Right. I had, one of the things I firmly believe is everything in life worth having is on the other side of me doing something I don't want to do. I had no idea what sobriety was. So until I got uncomfortable and challenged myself, and like you said, it's been amazing. My life is amazing today. It just is. Just the fact that I can wake up every morning. Uh, and, and by amazing, I don't mean material things. Just the fact that I can wake up every morning at 6 o'clock, 6.30, and I'm ready to face today. That's a miracle in itself to me. You know? <laughs> right. It is. Yeah, I'm up at like 5 a.m. every day, as opposed to being up until 5 a.m. every day, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> right. So when was your last drink or drug, David? Uh, January 26th of 2019, so about two and a half years. Awesome. And I know you're sponsoring guys now, right? Right, right. Sponsoring guys, uh, going to meetings. You know, I another weird thing that I do every day, which is, a, is crazy to me, is I pray and I meditate today. What are you grateful for today, David? I am grateful to meet and have this conversation with you. Ditto. I'm grateful for the weather. It's a beautiful day out here in Austin. And I am grateful for my sobriety. And they can That's just great. be simple things, right? Oh, absolutely. They don't have to be these huge, elaborate, you know, these are just everyday things, the sunshine, you know, the, the sun, yeah. whatever it may be, just practicing that gratitude, I think just changes your mindset and helps helped me at least to open my eyes to 
the gifts that I have. And, you know, once you, you sort of flip that switch, then you start to realize the other gifts that you have and how blessed we are. And, um, your gratitude for other things sort of opens up, at least it did for me. Absolutely. It's funny. I was in a store the other day buying some slacks, right? And I was asking the lady if she also had this, this size and everything and, and khaki. I was getting some blue slacks and yeah. I saw some shoes I liked. And so I was getting those shoes and checking out of my size and I'm checking out and I handed her my credit card or debit card. And I just had this moment of yeah, as simple as that was, how grateful I am. I'm here. I found some shoes I like, other stuff. I can go ahead and buy them. Right. And I have a credit card to pay for it. it just right. little things like that, you know, is so different than a few years ago. And so, like you say, sometimes it's the smaller things that we're grateful for that make the biggest difference in my life. David, what do you hope that people take away from hearing you on the podcast today or things that maybe they can remember or action items that they can start doing today? The first thing I would say is if you're struggling, ask for help. And again, I know that is uncomfortable. That is uncomfortable. Uh, The second thing I would say is Nate and Dave, two people who struggled for a long time and have been where you are and we're not there anymore. And so you can do it. You can 100% do it. It's not boring. Uh, Sobriety is fantastic. But you have to get uncomfortable and do the work. And so if you don't, uh, if you can, reach out to somebody for help and know that there is life on the other side of it that is amazing. David, thank you so much for your time today. Very powerful stuff. I know that we can help some of our fellow members of the queer community and everyone for that matter. So I appreciate your time. Let's keep in touch, my friend. Absolutely. If you ever get down to Austin, Texas, you got to hit me up. We'll go to dinner. I I would like to come visit. (laughs) All right, David, enjoy your weekend. Talk soon. Okay. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. Huge thank you to David for being so open and honest. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. You can find all things podcast related and subscribe to our show at thesobrietydiaries.com, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast and on Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries pod. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, friends.